Chapter 7 of Characters of Shakespeare's Plays by William Hazlitt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Nemo and Eva Davis. Coriolanus. Shakespeare has in this play shown himself well versed in history and state affairs. Coriolanus is a storehouse of political commonplaces. Anyone who studies it may save himself the trouble of reading Burke's Reflections or Paine's Rights of Man, or the debates in both houses of Parliament since the French Revolution or our own. The arguments for and against aristocracy or democracy, on the privileges of the few and the claims of the many, on liberty and slavery, power and the abuse of it, peace and war, are here very ably handled with the spirit of a poet and the acuteness of a philosopher. Shakespeare himself seems to have had a leaning to the arbitrary side of the question, perhaps from some feeling of contempt for his own origin, and to have spared no occasion of baiting the rabble. What he says of them is very true. What he says of their betters is also very true, though he dwells less upon it. The cause of the people is indeed but little calculated as a subject for poetry. It admits of rhetoric, which goes into argument and explanation, but it presents no immediate or distinct images to the mind, no jutting frieze, buttress, or coin of vantage, for poetry to make its pendant bed and procreant cradle in. The language of poetry naturally falls in with the language of power. The imagination is an exaggerating and exclusive faculty. It takes from one thing to add to another. It accumulates circumstances together to give the greatest possible effect to a favorite object. The understanding is a dividing and measuring faculty. It judges of things, not according to their immediate impression on the mind, but according to their relations to one another. The one is a monopolizing faculty which seeks the greatest quantity of present excitement by inequality and disproportion. The other is a distributive faculty, which seeks the greatest quantity of ultimate good by justice and proportion. The one is an aristocratical, the other a republican faculty. The principle of poetry is a very anti-leveling principle. It aims at effect. It exists by contrast. It admits of no medium. It is everything by excess. It rises above the ordinary standard of suffering and crimes. It presents a dazzling appearance. It shows its head turreted, crowned and crested. Its front is gilt and blood-stained. Before it, it carries noise, and behind it, tears. It has its altars and its victims, sacrifices, human sacrifices, kings, priests, nobles, arts, train-bearers, tyrants and slaves its executioners. Carnage is its daughter. Poetry is right royal. It puts the individual for the species, the one above the infinite, many, might before right. A lion hunting a flock of sheep or a herd of wild asses is a more poetical object than they and we even take part with the lordly beast, 
because our vanity of some other feeling makes us disposed to place ourselves in the situation of the strongest party so we feel some concern for the poor citizens of rome when they meet together to compare their wants and grievances till coriolanus comes in and with blows and big words drives this set of poor rats this rascal scum to their homes and beggary before him there is nothing heroical in a multitude of miserable rogues not wishing to be starved or complaining that they are like to be so but when a single man comes forward to brave their cries and to make them submit to the last indignities from mere pride and self-will our admiration of his prowess is immediately converted into contempt for their pusillanimity. the insolence of power is stronger than the plea of necessity the tame submission to usurped authority or even the natural resistance to it has nothing to excite or flatter the imagination it is the assumption of a right to insult or oppress others that carries an imposing air of superiority with it we had rather be the oppressor than the oppressed the love of power in ourselves and the admiration of it in others are both natural to man the one makes him a tyrant the other a slave wrong dressed out in pride pomp and circumstance has more attraction than abstract right coriolanus complains of the fickleness of the people yet the instant he cannot gratify his pride and obstinacy at their expense he turns his arms against his country if his country was not worth defending why did he build his pride on its defence he is a conqueror and a hero he conquers other countries and he makes this plea for enslaving his own and when he is prevented from doing so he leagues with its enemies to destroy his country he rates the people as if he were a god to punish and not a man of their infirmity he scoffs at one of their tribunes for maintaining their rights and franchises mark you his absolute shall not marking his own absolute will to take everything from them his impatience of the slightest opposition to his own pretensions being in proportion to their arrogance and absurdity if the great and powerful had the beneficence and wisdom of gods then all this would have been well if with a greater knowledge of what is good for the people they had as great a care for their interest as they have for themselves if they were seated above the world sympathizing with the welfare but not feeling the passions of men receiving neither good nor hurt from them but bestowing their benefits as free gifts on them they might then rule over them like another providence but this is not the case coriolanus is unwilling that the senate should show their cares for the people lest their cares should be construed into fears to the subversion of all due authority and he is no sooner disappointed in his schemes to deprive the people not only of the cares of the state but of all power to redress themselves then volumnia is made madly to exclaim now the red pestilence strike all trades in rome and occupations perish this is but natural it is but natural for a mother to have more regard for her son than for a whole city but then the city should be left to take some care of itself the care of the state cannot we here see 
be safely entrusted to maternal affection or to the domestic charities of high life the great have private feelings of their own to which the interest of humanity and justice must curtsy their interests are so far from being the same as those of the community that they are in direct and necessary opposition to them their power is at the expense of our weakness their riches of our poverty their pride of our degradation their splendor of our wretchedness their tyranny of our servitude if they had the superior knowledge ascribed to them which they have not it would only render them so much more formidable and from gods would convert them into devils the whole dramatic moral of coriolanus is that those who have little shall have less and those who have much shall take all that others have left the people are poor therefore they ought to be starved they are slaves therefore they ought to be beaten they work hard therefore they ought to be treated like beasts of burden they are ignorant therefore they ought not to be allowed to feel that they want food or clothing or rest that they are enslaved oppressed and miserable this is the logic of the imagination and the passions which seek to aggrandize what excites admiration and to heap contempt on misery to raise power into tyranny and to make tyranny absolute to thrust down that which is low still lower and to make wretches desperate to exalt magistrates into kings kings into gods to degrade subjects to the rank of slaves and slaves to the condition of brutes the history of mankind is a romance a mask a tragedy constructed upon the principles of poetical justice it is a noble or royal hunt in which what is sport to the few is death to the many and in which the spectators halloo and encourage the strong to set upon the weak and cry havoc in the chase though they do not share in the spoil we may depend upon it that what men delight to read in books they will put in practice in reality one of the most natural traits in this play is the difference of the interest taken in the success of coriolanus by his wife and mother the one is only anxious for his honor the other is fearful for his life volumnia methinks i hither hear your husband's drum i see him pluck a phidias down by the hair methinks i see him stamp thus and call thus come on ye cowards you were god in fear though you were born in rome his bloody brow with his mailed hand then wiping forth he goes like to a harvest man that's tasked to mow or all or lose his hire virgilla his bloody brow o oh, jupiter no blood volumnia away you fool it more becomes a man than guilt his trophy the breast of hecuba when she did suckle hector looked not lovelier than hector's forehead when it spit forth blood at grecian swords contending when she hears the trumpets that proclaim her son's return she says in the true spirit of a roman matron these are the ushers of martius before him he carries noise and behind him he leaves tears death that dark spirit in his nervy arm doth lie 
which being advanced declines and then men die coriolanus himself is a complete character his love of reputation his contempt of popular opinion his pride and modesty are consequences of each other his pride consists in the inflexible sternness of his will his love of glory is a determined desire to bear down all opposition and to extort the admiration both of friends and foes his contempt for popular favor his unwillingness to hear his own praises spring from the same source he cannot contradict the praises that are bestowed upon him therefore he is impatient at hearing them he would enforce the good opinion of others by his actions but does not want their acknowledgments and words pray now no more my mother who has a charter to extol her blood when she does praise me grieves me his magnanimity is of the same kind he admires in an enemy that courage which he honours in himself he places himself on the hearth of Aufidius, with the same confidence that he would have met him in the field and feels that by putting himself in his power he takes from him all temptation for using it against him in the title page of coriolanus it is said at the bottom of the dramatis personae the whole history exactly followed and many of the principal speeches copied from the life of coriolanus and plutarch it will be interesting to our readers to see how far this is the case two of the principal scenes those between coriolanus and Aufidius, and between coriolanus and his mother are thus given in sir thomas north's translation of plutarch dedicated to queen elizabeth fifteen seventy nine the first is as follows it was even twilight when he entered the city of antium and many people met him in the streets but no man knew him so he went directly to tullus Aufidius's house and when he came thither he got him up straight to the chimney hearth and sat him down and spake not a word to any man his face all muffled over they of the house spying him wondered what he should be yet they durst not bid him rise for ill favourably muffled and disguised as he was yet there appeared a certain majesty in his countenance and in his silence whereupon they went to tullus who was at supper to tell him of the strange disguising of this man tullus rose presently from the board and coming towards him asked him what he was and wherefore he came then martius unmuffled himself and after he had paused a while making no answer he said unto himself if thou knowest me not yet tullus and seeing me dost not perhaps believe me to be the man i am indeed i must of necessity discover myself to be that i am i am caius martius who hath done to thyself particularly and to all the volsices generally great hurt and mischief which i cannot deny for my surname of coriolanus that i bear for i never had other benefits nor recompense of the true and painful service i have done and the extreme dangers i have been in but this only surname a good memory and witness of the malice and displeasure thou shouldest bear me indeed the name only remaineth with me for the rest the envy and cruelty of the people of rome have taken from me by the sufferance of the dastardly nobility and magistrates 
who have forsaken me and left me banished by the people this extremity hath now driven me to come as a poor suitor to take thy chimney hearth not of any hope i have to save my life thereby for if i had feared death i would not have come hither to put myself in hazard but pricked forward with a desire to be revenge of them that thus have banished me which now i do begin in putting my person into the hands of their enemies wherefore if thou hast any heart to be wrecked of the injuries thy enemies have done thee speed thee now and let my misery serve thy turn and so use it as my services may be a benefit to the volsces promising thee that i will fight with better good will for all you than i did when i was against you knowing that they fight more valiantly who know the force of the enemy than such as have never proved it and if it be so that thou dare not and have thou art weary to prove fortune any more then am i also weary to live any longer and it were no wisdom in thee to save the life of him who hath been heretofore thy mortal enemy in whose service now can nothing help nor pleasure thee tulus hearing what he said was a marvellous glad man and taking him by the hand he said unto him stand up o martius and be of good cheer for in proffering thyself unto us thou dost us great honour and by this means thou mayest hope also of greater things at all the volsces hands so he feasted him for that time and entertained him in the honourablest manner he could talking with him of no other matter at that present but within a few days after they fell to consultation together in what sort they should begin their wars the meeting between coriolanus and his mother is also nearly the same as in the play now was martius set then in the chair of state with all the honours of a general and when he had spied the women coming afar off he marvelled what the matter meant but afterwards knowing his wife which came foremost he determined at the first to persist in his obstinate and inflexible rancour but overcome in the end with natural affection and being altogether altered to see them his heart would not serve him to tarry their coming to his chair but coming down in haste he went to meet them and first he kissed his mother and embraced her a pretty while then his wife and little children and nature so wrought with him that the tears fell from his eyes and he could not keep himself from making much of them but yielded to the affection of his blood as if he had been violently carried with the fury of a most swift running stream after he had thus lovingly received them and perceiving that his mother volumnia would begin to speak to him he called the chiefest of the council of the volsces to hear what she would say then she spake in this sort if we held our peace my son and determined not to speak the state of our poor bodies and present sight of our raiment would easily betray to thee what life we have led at home since thy exile and abode abroad but think now with thyself how much more unfortunate than all the women living we are come hither considering that the sight which should be most pleasant to all others to behold spiteful fortune had made most fearful to us making myself to see my son and my daughter here her husband besieging the walls of his native country 
so is that which is the only comfort to all others in their adversity and misery to pray unto the gods and to call them for aid is the only thing which plunges us into the most deep perplexity for we cannot alas together pray both for victory to our country and for the safety of thy life also but a world of grievous curses yea more than any mortal enemy can heap upon us are forcibly wrapped up in our prayers for the bitter sop of most hard choice is offered thy wife and children to forego one of the two either to lose the person of thyself or the nurse of their native country for myself my son i am determined not to tarry till fortune in my lifetime do make an end of this war for if i cannot persuade the rather to do good unto both parties then to overthrow and destroy the one preferring love and nature before the malice and calamity of wars thou shalt see my son and trust unto it thou shalt no sooner march forward to assault thy country but thy foot shall tread upon thy mother's womb that brought thee first into this world and i may not defer to see the day either that my son be led prisoner in triumph by his natural countrymen or that he himself do triumph of them and of his natural country for if it were so that my request tended to save thy country in destroying the volsces i must confess thou wouldst hardly and doubtfully resolve on that for as to destroy thy natural country it is altogether unmeet and unlawful so were it not just and less honourable to betray those that put their trust in thee but my only demand consisteth to make a jail delivery of all evils which delivereth equal benefit and safety both to the one and the other but most honourable for the volsces for it shall appear that having victory in their hands they have a special favour granted us singular graces peace and amity albeit themselves have no less part of both than we of which good if so it came to pass thyself is the only author and so hast thou the only honour but if it fail and fall out contrary thyself alone deservedly shalt carry the shameful reproach and burthen of either party so though the end of war be uncertain yet this notwithstanding is most certain that if it be thy chance to conquer this benefit shalt thou reap of thy goodly conquest to be chronicled the plague and destroyer of thy country and if fortune overthrow thee then the world will say that through desire to revenge thy private injuries thou hast for ever undone thy good friends who did most lovingly and courteously receive thee martius gave good ear unto his mother's words without interrupting her speech at all and after she had said what she would he held his peace a pretty while and answered not a word hereupon she began again to speak unto him and said my son why dost thou not answer me dost thou think it good altogether to give place unto thy choler and desire of revenge and thinkest thou if not honestly for thee to grant thy mother's request in so weighty a cause dost thou take it honourable for a nobleman to remember the wrongs and injuries done him and dost not in like case think it an honest nobleman's part to be thankful for the goodness the parents do show to their children acknowledging the duty and reverence they ought to bear unto them no man living is more bound to show himself 
thankful in all parts and respects than thyself who so universally showest all ingratitude moreover my son thou hast sorely taken of thy country exacting grievous payments upon them in revenge of the injuries offered thee besides thou hast not hitherto showed thy poor mother any courtesy and therefore it is not only honest but due unto me that without compulsion i should obtain my so just and reasonable request of thee but since by reason i cannot persuade thee to it to what purpose do i defer my last hope and with these words herself his wife and children fell down upon their knees before him martius seeing that could refrain no longer but went straight and lifted her up crying out o oh, mother what have you done to me and holding her hard by the right hand o oh, mother said he you have won a happy victory for your country but mortal and unhappy for your son for i see myself vanquished by you alone these words being spoken openly he spake a little apart with his mother and wife and then let them return again to rome for so they did request him and so remaining in the camp that night the next morning he dislodged and marched homeward unto the volsi's country again shakespeare has in giving a dramatic form to this passage adhered very closely and properly to the text he did not think it necessary to improve upon the truth of nature several of the scenes in julius caesar particularly portia's appeal to the confidence of her husband by showing him the wound she had given herself and the appearance of the ghost of caesar to brutus are in like manner taken from the history End of Coriolanus